Let's turn to Joel chapter 2, verses 21 through 27. That's going to be our text this evening. Isn't it amazing how much news is 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 uh, is happening? I mean, like every minute of the day, something new is transpiring, and and it just gets crazier every moment. Ever, anybody remember the Twilight Zone? Feel like we got into the twilight zone. I, I keep expecting Rod Serling to show up, you know, <laughs> in front of the news, you know, and say, "You just entered into the twilight zone." Uh, well, that's okay. We know what's going to happen. We're waiting for Jesus to come, and everything that's been happening, He's already told us it's happened. So, praise the Lord. Anyway, we're here in Joel chapter 2, and um, this particular passage here seems to be a, a, a very encouraging one in that it has the Lord expressing to Israel the, the blessings that are going to come once they begin to obey him, once they again turn back to him. And, uh, you know, it, it is a, a tremendous blessing to know that, you know, from the very onset, whether to Israel or actually to all who would believe him, both Jew and Gentile, that uh, if we find ourselves in obedience to the Lord, he pours out his blessings. Now, that seems a pretty... That seems to be a pretty easy uh, equation, you know. I do this and I'll do that. <laughs> but it's not that easy, is it? And it wasn't easy with Israel. And even when God was in, in, in their presence, out of Egypt, uh, when, when the Lord said, I'll, I'll go with you, I, I, will be, I will be the pillar of cloud by day, before you in a pillar of fire by night so you'll know that I'm with you and still it was difficult for them to to obey yeah. the Lord gives Moses his ten commandments to give to the people and the first reaction is and I paraphrase of course you know that's only ten we could do ten but they couldn't even do one so we see what the Lord was revealing was the heart of, of, uh, of man, the heart of fallen man that is so easily moved by temptation and, and by de uh, deception. And Israel was being warned by God through the prophets that at a certain time, because they had not obeyed the Lord, because they had rebelled against him, 
certain judgments were going to come. And he sent that locust uh, plague to show them, if you think this is bad, think again. Because the worst judgment is to come. Then came the Assyrians, and then later on the Babylonians would come. Eventually the Romans would scatter the Jewish people across the face of the earth. So when now the the people awaken by the trumpet blasts to assemble, to humble themselves, to repent of their sins, the Lord begins to tell them that he's going to have pity on them. That's back in verse 18. And so... We'll come back to some of that in review in a moment, but let's read verses 21 through 27, where the Lord is speaking. Well, actually, the Lord is speaking through the prophet. So the prophet is speaking out uh, under the inspiration of of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty, And be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God. And none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. I I love that last statement in verse 27. Where God says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. The I am. And that I am the Lord your God and none else. How wonderful the connection that we see between the God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel who also said, I am. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. The previous passage that we studied, verses 18 through 21, marked a turning point in the prophecy of Joel. 
Its focus was the Lord's response to the repentance of, of the nation of Israel. His wonderful promise of mercy and restoration. A day was coming when true believers would receive their inheritance, everything that was promised to them by the, by the Lord in his holy word would be that which they would receive. His promise of mercy was akin to salvation. His mercy was their salvation. And restoration was always the Lord's desire for his people. God knew all along that he would have to restore them because he knew all along that they would falter and they would fail. Much like we realize our own lives sometimes, how that we falter and how we fail. And the enemy does all he can to make us feel that God, or make us think that God is not going to love us any longer because we've been such, such poor examples of his love and mercy. And the Lord always seems to get beyond that voice that we hear. And he said, do you remember when I said I'd never leave you nor forsake you? He would never leave his people. And he would never leave those who have trusted in him. Though we falter, though we fail, he always will pick us up. That was his promise. And I can tell you he's been good on that promise. And so these two wonderful gifts, mercy and restoration, would be showered upon Israel simply because the Lord was jealous for his land. And he longed to have pity for his people. Now, while these promises were directed to the Jews in Joel's day, they are a type of, or a foreshadowing, if you will, of the blessings that will come upon the earth in the Messianic kingdom. That day that is coming, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years in the Messianic temple in Jerusalem, Zion. And again, that's at the second coming of Christ. That's when he comes to this earth as described in, in the book of Zechariah when he places his feet upon the Mount of Olives and then enters in through the gate into the city of Jerusalem. Of course, a lot of things are going to change. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here in just a moment, but this day is coming. The day that he promised he would come and establish the kingdom again on the throne of David in Jerusalem is the day that Jesus will establish God's kingdom on earth and he will rule as king of kings and lord of lords. Now last time we saw three of six blessings that the Lord would give them when they would sincerely place their faith in the Lord. The first, <coughs> excuse me, the first promise was temporal prosperity. And of course that would be temporal for all of us. I mean, it was temporal for, you know, whichever generation finally just cried out to the Lord and, and desired, you know, to be right with him, then he would give them temporal blessing on this earth. Now eternal blessing would come, of course, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, during and after the thousand-year reign of Christ. But the temporal blessing, the temporal prosperity, as it were, would come to Israel when they would finally cry out to God in repentance, and then they would be brought back into the land and God would provide for them and, 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 and give them this this prosperity. Secondly, the Lord would restore respect and honor to his people. Now that hasn't quite really happened 
yet. In fact, we're seeing a lot of hatred toward Israel today. And sadly enough, we're even seeing it in the, in the halls of our own Congress, which makes me a little loopy that, you know, that uh, people would vote for some of these anti-Semites that would get in to cause the kind of problems that they're causing today. But God is going to restore the respect and honor to his people. And thirdly, the Lord would restore peace and national security. Eventually, of course, for his people. When the northern army would attack the Jews, the Lord himself would defeat the enemy. As we saw at the end of last study, and what had happened to the Assyrians when they tried to come down to Jerusalem, when they tried to come into the southern kingdom. God was the one who protected them. Now the next wonderful promise, which is the fourth promise, is found in verses 21 and 22. So we'll begin our study here. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. It's, it's a wonderful thing to note that uh, at, at various times and in various uh, uh, dispensations, the, the fig tree and the vine both are a picture of Israel itself or, or a, a symbol of Israel itself. But I want you to notice that the Lord, and maybe I should ask, did, did you notice that the Lord instructed the land not to fear? Fear not, O land. Now there are some commentators and interpreters who apply this particular exhortation to the people of the land, but more than likely it is a poetic device used to describe a restoration of the land's fertility and production, the land's peace and security, and its freedom from war and destruction. Because I can tell you this, and of course you can read it in the scriptures or you can just look at history, and wherever wars are fought, Wherever conflicts take place, battles of any kind between nations and peoples, one of the things that suffers the most is the land, where they fight. We look at the destruction in, 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 in Europe during World War II and World War I, as it were. And uh, then, of course, at the end of World War II, what happened at the dropping of the uh, atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, the land suffers. And if the land suffers, the people suffer. So the evidence for this interpretation is the fact that the Lord encourages the beasts of the field, which by the way, in this particular case are the wild animals. He encourages, them, he encourages them not to fear any longer. That's verse 22. Now, now the land was going to produce more than enough fruit for them. Whatever the animals were going to need, they would have fruit or grain or whatever. They would have enough because God has promised that. Now consider how the creation grows. Now see, you know, for the Lord to say, you know, he talks to the land and he talks to the animals, 
Uh, it, it, it's, it's more than just a poetic device when you think about it. I want you to consider how the creation groans over the missteps and the misgivings of a people that should trust always in the Lord, but failing miserably in that regard. The creation groans because the creation suffers. I mean, even from the time of the locust invasion, go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. Go back a page to verse 18 of chapter 1. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. They groan because they have nothing to eat. O oh Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And the flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee. Those are the wild animals. For the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So from the locust invasion through even the invasions of foreign armies into the land, the animals are subject to all of the struggles of a sinful world. And what's interesting about this is that we have to realize something deeper than what we think, you know, that we as human beings are the only ones that communicate with God. Because Paul himself in Romans 8, verses 60 through 22 says, the Spirit, himself, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now this is to set up what I'm going to get to. So I'm just keeping this in context. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. But then he says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Tremendous statement. The sufferings that we're going through in this present time can't even be compared with the glory of eternity with the glory of being with God, the glory that is going to be revealed to us at that time that we be changed. But then he says this, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. And that is talking about not just the creature being like homo sapiens, that's the creature that is created, that is living on this earth. The creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's like saying all of those dogs that were in the West, Westminster uh, Kennel Club dog show this past week were all going through their paces and they're thinking, man, I can't wait till the rapture of the church happens. Because that's the manifestation of the sons of God. I'll get to that in a moment. 
Because it says, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And then he says, for we know that the whole creation groaneth. Groaneth. Just like those beasts, beasts were groaning. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Makes you wonder sometimes when certain animals look at us and say, oh, this is all your fault. <laughs> they want to take a little chunk out of your leg. <laughs> That's why you need to really love God's creation and love animals because you know that God created them for a reason. You know, If they could only talk, wow. What would they say? So, <coughs> it is very possible that the earnest expectation of the, cre- of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That phrase there refers to the rapture of the church. Since, in verse 23, this is what Paul writes. The next verse says, and not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, notice, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. When does that happen? It has either happened at death, but the body hasn't been redeemed yet because you're dead. But remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. But then what we'll get is not the same body, but a new body. Remember, the corruptible will become incorruptible. The mortal shall become immortal. So just think, just something to think about. Just something to think about. Certainly for some, it will be the rapture of the church. But the dead in Christ shall rise first. Always remember that. Okay. I kind of took a little rabbit trail on that one. But the fifth wonderful promise that we find in, this, in the text is mentioned in verse 23 again of our text in Joel. Verse 23, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, Now, some translations say faithfully. But the word moderately there literally means in due measure. For he has given you the former rain in due measure, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Now, it is important that we have a basic understanding of the early and latter rains mentioned in Scripture, especially here in Joel. Essentially, the grain fields in Israel are largely dependent upon the rain that falls for their fruitfulness. No rain falls, no fruit. No rain falls in the land from May to September. So they have to depend upon an earlier rain, and then of course the latter rain, beyond September. So the former rain spoken of here in our text usually falls in the mid to latter part of October to the first part of November and can carry on even into December. It is this rain 
that is the signal for the farmer to begin his plowing and planting seed. Now, I've, I've been in Israel in, in November a few times, and I can tell you it rains a lot in November in Israel. And uh, I've been there usually in March or spring, at the early start of, of spring, and it, it rains okay. It is, it is not a lot of rain, <laughs> but it picks up into April. And, and, uh, and then, of course, by May, the rains have stopped. So uh, they, they really depend upon the, uh, that's the latter rain, by the way. The former rain, of course, is the, the one in October. But it is this rain that is the signal for the farmer to begin his plowing and planting seed. That is, of course, the, uh, uh, the former rain, I should say. So the scriptures also speak of the latter rain, which normally falls, as I said, in March and April, and it is a rain that is of so much value in maturing the barley and the wheat crops. So they have to have that rain in March and April because uh, the, the, the barley and the wheat have, you know, have to mature. And without, without the water, it, it's, they're not going to mature. The, the crops are not going to mature. So in verse 23, in verse 23, we're told of three rains. If you'll notice, it says the rain, the former rain and the latter rain. Now, what's really interesting is that all three are different Greek, uh, are different uh, Hebrew words. Uh, the rain is the word geshem, geshem. The former rain is more. That would be the rain from um, October to December or thereabouts. And the latter rain is malkosh, malkosh. So each one has a different, you know, it pertains to either the former or the latter. But Joel puts the former rain first. If you'll notice, he mentions the former rain first in verse 23. He says, Be glad then, you children of Israel, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately or in, in, in due. <coughs> Excuse me. In due measure. And Joel puts that former rain first, the more rain the autumnal rain that takes place from the middle of October to possibly the middle of December. And it's put first as Joel prophesies in summer because what, what do we know about summer? Well, that's usually when the plagues of locusts come. So if he's prophesying in summer, which is when the locust invasions take place, therefore, He's looking to the time of early sowing in the autumn when the autumnal rain was necessarily required. And then the rain is mentioned, Geshem, because it literally means the showering or heavy rain. Now this is an interesting rain because it is the rain that takes place usually in the winter. So December, January, uh, and, and, and I've actually been in Israel, I think one time in January, and it was really, really cold and rainy. Yeah, I remember, yeah. Cold and rainy, a lot of rain, got sick. I was good at that, I'm still good at it, you know. 
But uh, so it, it's, it's the rain. Uh, uh, is Geshem literally meaning the shower of he heavy rains? <laughs> then he repeats the former rain, the moreh, implies that the Lord will give it not merely for demand, the demand of that particular season when the prophet spoke, but also for the future and regular course of nature. In other words, he mentions it first, he mentions the December rain, then he mentions the former rain again to say it's not just for one time, but there's a coming time later. The autumn and the spring rain. Uh, the former being put first in the order of nature as being required for the sowing in autumn as the latter is required in spring for maturing the young crop. So as for the former rain being given moderately, it literally, as I said, means uh, in, in due measure, which means neither too much or too little, either of which extremes would hurt even and even ruin the crop. So rain is a very important issue uh, for Israel. Rain is an extremely important issue for the people in Israel. You, you would not believe this, but, but you got to go to see this at a time when it rains in Israel. The people are just having a wonderful time. They're actually thanking God that it's raining, and they get outside of their cars, and they do all kinds of neat things, you know, because they're just being rained upon, and they're, and they're thanking God for it. And they love rain. They really do. What's even more freaky is when it snows. Because when it snows, the people get out and they're not dressed for it. I mean, most of the time, you know, it's like it's cold and they have little jackets. But man, oh man, they get out there and they're just having fun with the snow. They just love precipitation of any kind. But it's also something to consider that whenever the people disobey God, that's one of the things he withholds from them. Think about that. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 17. And it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season. The first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in the fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven. Notice that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, and lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. You think about that for just a moment. It's easy for man to say, look at what we've done. Look at what I've grown. Ever had a garden? I grew tomatoes one time my whole life. I just wanted to do something different in the summer. 
spring and summer. I saw a group of tomatoes. And I watched them. They were my babies. I would feed them every day. I'd make sure there were no bugs around. I did everything possible. I didn't realize what I was going to get. I had planted, what do they call those things? Uh, Beefsteak tomatoes. Before I knew it, there were some tomatoes about the size of a, bigger than a softball. And I was holding this, you know, a picture with all these tomatoes that I'd grown. And then I said, I didn't really grow these, did I, Lord? You did. Because then you come to realize, we don't grow anything. Without God's wisdom, without God's grace and mercy, we would have nothing. No, but it's easy for man to take the credit for a lot of stuff. So God says, if you know, once you go away from me and you start depending on other gods because you want to be the, really, when it comes down to it, you want to be your own God, then I'll go ahead and take the reign because that's mine. See if you can grow anything then. See if you can sustain your life then. Not in a mean way, right? I mean, it's, it's like a lesson. Think about Jeremiah 5, 23 and 24, where it says, but this people has a revolting and a rebellious heart. They're revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain, both the former and the latter in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Did you notice that? Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord that giveth rain. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Got my water. Or something that we learned in Hosea chapter 6, verse 3, when we were studying that a while back. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord? His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. If we follow on to know the Lord. Hence, the just or right order of nature had been interrupted through the sins of the people. But the Lord was going to restore these rains. Remember that for nearly 2,000 years, the land of Israel lay desolate. It lay desolate. I mean, there was nothing for almost 2,000 years. And for the most part, was left barren and without proper care until 1948. And despite wars and conflicts over the last 70 years, Israel has been blessed with the former and latter rains again. Not to mention the heavier rains in the winter season. And these rains have caused the land to produce vegetation, fruit, flowers, all sorts of plants in abundance, things that the land didn't have for 2,000 years. And he brought back the people because he's preparing them for those last seven years of their uh, judgment that was to last 490 years 
and they've only gone through 483 of those years. There's seven years left, but they have to be in the land. So now they're back in the land. But God said, when I bring you back into the land, I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to give you your reign again. And they have become one of the leading growers of fruits and, and flowers for the whole world. And as Chuck Smith so profoundly said in his study of Joel, he said, tell me that God's word isn't true. Tell me that God doesn't know what he's talking about. The evidence is the nation of Israel, all of the evidence that anybody would ever need. God's word is true, and God knows what he's talking about. And then we go on in verses 24 and 25, where it says, And the floors shall be full of wheat. The result of the former and latter rains. The floor shall be full of wheat, the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm. Those were the four types of locusts that had invaded Israel at a time that Joel had said, you remember what had happened? What was left was nothing. But this is nothing to what is going to happen when judgment comes. But let, let, me, let me mention to you this, this phrase, and I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. That is a, a, an incredibly wonderful statement that reminds us how much God loves his people in spite of the things that they've done, in spite of the things that they did in rebelling against God. I'll restore to you the years. There are times when we wonder, could our years ever be restored ourselves when we've wasted so many years not serving the Lord, not loving Jesus. God says, I'll restore you. It won't be the way we would like it. Sometimes we like to go back and, you know, make up for lost time or make up for lost uh, things. He restores it in a totally different way. But the, uh, the active word is restore. I will restore. But the locusts have destroyed. And he calls them my great army, which I sent among you. So the locusts were allowed by God. The northern army was allowed by God to awaken, to awaken his people. So it is here in this passage I just read to you, verses 24 and 25, that we find the sixth wonderful promise. That is that the Lord restores the food supplies of and for the people. All storage facilities and distribution centers would be filled with food. The threshing floors would be filled with grain and the vats would overflow with wine. 
In fact, the years of production lost due to the locust invasion, both the real locust and the northern army would be repaid in full. That really will not come until uh, the, the ultimate fulfillment. But never again would the people go hungry. And they would always have plenty of food to eat. Now, that's, that's kind of an important thing to understand. Because maybe you've seen these commercials where a certain organization that's uh, made up of Jewish people and Christians are raising money to you know, help feed uh, people in Israel. And that's true. There, there are people that right now need, need help. But they need help because you know, there's so many people coming in from, from various nations, pri primarily from Russia and, and uh, other, other nations uh, in that uh, um, Baltic region. Uh, so many Jews are coming down that they're, they're, they're having a, a crisis of, you know, where do we put them, how do we feed them? And they do, they pay for them. They actually give them so, each person so much money when they come in and become uh, uh, citizens of Israel, of the state of Israel. But that only goes so far what they give them. So yeah, but uh, see, that's just the reality of where we're living in today. You know, eventually though, I mean, really the nation of Israel is a very wealthy nation. One of the wealthiest, really because of all of their technology, because of everything that they've done, and because of the, the way that they have uh, done their agricultural uh, uh, things. I mean, this, this is why they, they're not really suffering. So it becomes more of, of, a, of a local issue that they need to take care of these other issues. But that's just the reality of things. Same thing happens in the United States. We have a lot of people that still go hungry, you know, from day to day. I wish we could do, no, we could do more to help them, you know. And we try, so you know it's it's not that we don't try, but that's the way it is in most countries today. But where there is more more oppression, that, I mean that's where it's really bad, like Venezuela, you know, and, and other places like that. You know, they don't they don't take care of their people, you know, they just want to use them as, as slaves of some sort. Uh, and if, uh, that's for another time. So the Lord had three major purposes now for restoring His people, and that's what we want to see in verses 26 and 27, the last. Two verses of our text here. It says, And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. I said there's three purposes for restoring his people. The first purpose for restoring his people was to stir them to praise him. To stir their hearts to praise him again. Offering up thanks for the wonderful miracles that he performed in their behalf. Don't you just love it when the Lord does something that you just, you can't, you can't stop praising him for it? And you want to tell the whole world about it because you want that to be a testimony of God's wondrous mercy and grace what he does for people. The second purpose was to make sure, to make sure that they were never again shamed and that his own name would never be discredited by the, by the people's sins. As I said earlier, that, that's still yet to happen because we're, we're living in a day and time when the Jews are still as a people being attacked by so many, so many countries and nations and even people in our own country. 
Some, in, in some cases because of misinformation, but in most cases because they, they've just been given a, a, a pack of lies. The news media is not really helping in that, in that regard. The third purpose was to make sure that they knew the most wonderful truth, that he was always present with them, and that he is the Lord, the only living and true God. That is the power of the statement, I am. The, the, the power of the name of God, I am. When Moses asked God, what name shall I give to Pharaoh when he asked me, who, who sent me? And he said, I am that I am. No greater name than the name of God. <clears throat> The one who is, who was, and will ever be. Because he's eternal. I am means I am, I've been, I am, and I will always be I am. That's a totally different time continuum that God is in, and that is eternal. Not like our own. And then here's something to think about. God the Father fulfilled his promise to send the Messiah of Israel, his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth. And it is in Christ that everyone receives the wonderful offering of mercy and restoration. If the theme tonight has been anything, it has been the, the theme of mercy and restoration. We need to understand that as, as believers in Jesus Christ. The Jewish people will need to understand that being God's people. But Jesus came to live a life of perfect righteousness. He alone was sinless. And therefore, he alone could die on the cross as the excuse me, as the perfect and ideal man. And as that perfect and ideal man, he could die for every human being. His righteousness and his death could stand as the righteousness and death for everyone who truly trusted in him. This was the reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth. To offer mercy and restoration. To offer the salvation that can only come from God to every human being who would place his or her faith in him. But this was only the first coming of Jesus Christ. This was only the first coming. The Lord also promised that Jesus would return one day to establish his kingdom on earth. We need to understand that when Jesus Christ returns, and I'm not, I'm not speaking of the rapture, that's a, that's a different matter. That happens, that happens before his second coming. But when Jesus Christ returns at his second coming, with ten thousands of his saints, as the scripture tells us, and, a host of, and the hosts of heaven. When Christ returns, he will not come as Savior. That's what he came the first time to do. He will not come as Savior, but as the Lord God of the universe. He returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. In that day, all the blessings and promises of God's holy word will be fulfilled. 
Not one promise will be unfulfilled. Every promise will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus when he comes and establishes his kingdom. And it needs to be said that all who truly trust in the Lord will receive the ultimate mercy and restoration. That is, they will finally inherit the eternal promises of God. A new heaven and a new earth. Peter speaks prophetically of this new heaven and new earth in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. He says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. You know, I, lo I love it when, when we're told by the, by the apostles, don't be ignorant. I like that. We're not supposed to be ignorant of his word. We're supposed to know the word of God. We, especially who are believers in Jesus Christ, need to know God's word. We, we, live, we live today in a world full of ignorance. People following people without wisdom and discernment. People following people into all manners of, of wickedness and evil. I, I, I still, to this, to this day, after the last three weeks of seeing what's been happening in the, in the state of Virginia, I'm wondering, you know, everything has come down to, to race and, and, uh, and sexual accusations. And I'm thinking, have they missed something? Yeah, what about infanticide and late-term abortion? Where did that go? That's not even an issue. And right before that, New York, the mayor, or I should say the governor of New York signs a late-term abortion bill where people stood and applauded uh, standing ovation for that kind of legalized death. But it's still murder. It's still murder in God's eyes. Our God is a God of life, not of death. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Y'all remember what that means now. If the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, it comes unexpectedly. No one's going to be expecting it. In the which the heavens shall pass away. Notice. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And get verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt, with fervent heat. Nevertheless, 
we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The Bible talks a lot about what we look for. Are we looking for the blessed hope for the glorious return of Jesus Christ? Are we looking up for our redemption draws near? Are we looking for new heavens and a new earth? I hope we are because I tell you what, this one's a mess. I mean, it's just a mess. That's what sin did. Let's never forget that that's what sin did. And as we close out this section of Joel, let's listen to what the Word of God says about the return and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Because this is what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. Now, of course, this is a promise that is given of the coming of the Messiah to be born on this earth. But notice that it says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, so the angel is speaking to Mary. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua. Yeshua, of course, is God is salvation. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And notice, the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Has that happened yet? No. But it's going to happen. The Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And things are going to change almost instantaneously. You know, you talk about building a wall. And how long it's taken to try to build a good wall, you know? That's nothing. A whole temple and a whole city is going to be built at the moment that Jesus places his feet on the Mount of Olives. There's no other way to consider that. We talked about this in the book of, when we were studying the book of Ezekiel. That all of these things are going to happen in an instant. And then there's Revelation 5, verses 12 to 14, where it says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in the heaven, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. The four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. <coughs> the one who sits on the throne, the one who will sit on the throne forever and ever.